Well, amen. I am so glad to be here today. Y'all glad to be at church this morning? Can we hear from you? Oh, come on. <laughs> You're like, Pastor Jason, I was doing just fine about to fall asleep, and now here you are making me clap on that. So I'm glad you're here, and happy Labor Day weekend. There's always kind of a sense that Labor Day closes out the summer, and so there's kind of a bit of sadness. I personally love summer, and I love spring, um, and I like fall, too. It's what follows fall that I'm not as big a fan about. You know, people always ask you, Jason, do you love Iowa? And I'm like, I absolutely love Iowa. It's a great place to live. It's like, is there anything about Iowa you don't like? I'm like, yeah, January and February. Uh, you know, beyond that, though, great place to live. A uh, huge shout out, I'm sure you already talked about it, to Pastor Ben and Susan. And as you know, uh, I make it one of my things in life to always torture Ben as often as possible uh, that I can. So like on Thursday night, I'm like, hey, Ben, do you hear that? And he texts back, he's like, hear what? And I'm like, exactly, enjoy. Because <laughs> the baby's coming. <laughs> so, but they're doing great. We're so excited. It sounds like everything went better than we could have planned. And uh, continue praying for them. I know there's a meal plan out there for them. Jump into that, too. It's a real easy way to just say throughout our community, we love you and we're praying for you and we care for you on that. So we're going to jump in today. We, uh, this is part two to a sermon we started last week where we're talking about the fall. We're getting really close to ending what we call our Origins series, uh, and next week we'll, we'll end it uh, with Pastor Bob, but uh, this week we're going to continue talking about the fall. Up to this point, we've talked about how God created the earth and he declared it was good, uh, that he created all things from nothing, and uh, including us. And what we've learned in this conversation is that we are not one big cosmic accident, and the world would like to tell us that we are sometimes. You know, nature rolled the dice and here we are. But what Genesis tells us is, no, you were uniquely created in God's image, that you have meaning, that you have purpose. And I fear we live in a world where a lot of people are just running around where they don't feel like they have meaning and they have purpose in their life. And the Bible wants you to let, let you know, no, God created you with a plan, with meaning, and you have a purpose. And that's why we've been going through this series. Yes, at the end of it, God says it is good. But I also want to warn you something we're going to pick up on and why we're sitting in the fall. God did say his creation was good. He never said his creation was safe. And there's a big difference on that. Sometimes we ask, why was there a tree there? Why was there a serpent speaking in the garden? He said it is good. He never said it was safe. We're called to defend. We're called to stand up against things that are wrong. We're called to stand for God's word and his commands. And last week we asked an interesting question. Do we have the right to question God's commands? And for a couple, it ruffled some feathers. They're like, well, I think I do, but do we? Do we have the right to question God's commands? Because the answer is no. While we may have free will, free will is never, ever a license to sin. Ever a license to sin on that. And we live in a culture that thinks it's okay to question God, but what we learned last week is when we question God, we all too often place ourselves above God and put him on trial. And we say, God, I expect this from you. Here's how I would do things. Here's the right way. And when God doesn't meet our expectations, we say, well, he's an unloving, evil God, and we should not go there. And then we begin to not trust him. We doubt him. And that's exactly what happened in the story last week. Eve started by revising God's word a little bit. Do you remember that? And from revising God's word, the enemy sees that as an opportunity to twist God's word. When the enemy twists God's word, all too often we begin to doubt God's word. 
And in our doubt, we run the risk of abandoning God's word. And that's exactly what ends up happening to Eve. She misquotes God's commands. The enemy comes in and sees that as an opportunity to twist it even a little bit further. In that twisting, she begins to doubt, and ultimately she abandons God's word. And we have to ask ourselves, have there been times in our lives when maybe we're not taking God's commands seriously enough? When maybe we've changed a little thing here or adjusted it somewhat over here? And ask ourselves, do we have permission to do that? Is that okay? Now, uh, as we concluded last week, it could be very easy at this point to say, obviously, the point of this entire story is it's Eve's fault. Ladies, you did it to us. How dare you? You know what I mean? On that, I mean, we could end that story there. We're like, well, didn't Eve sin? She ate from the fruit. That, that means isn't she the one that caused all the problems? Isn't she the reason for the chaos and, and how we got off track and, and for all the other things that happen, what we call humankind now outside of God? Isn't this Eve's fault? But let's take a look at a couple verses and see, for instance, what the Apostle Paul has to say about this. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 is a great example. It says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. Who's that one man? Adam. Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Then to the church in Corinth, notice what he wrote. He said, for since death came through a man, that's Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. Who is that? It's Jesus Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So Adam or Eve took a bite of that fruit, and it would seem at our first perspective, well, I mean, isn't this Eve's fault? She's the first one to take a bite. But what's Paul saying here? He's saying, no, sin entered the world through Adam. So what's going on? In fact, just to muddy up the waters a little bit more for you, when he's writing to his protege, Timothy, notice what he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says in there, Adam was not the one deceived... It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. So Adam's not the one deceived. It was the woman who sinned and was deceived. And our first thought is, is Adam confused? I mean, it seems like in, in a couple verses he's pointing the finger at, at Adam. And, and then in this verse, it seems like he's pointing his finger at Eve. I mean, is he like theologically schizophrenic? Does he not know what he's talking? Did he forget what he wrote to one church while he was writing to Timothy? Is Paul confused? We're going to jump into that today and, and dive in a little bit more because the Bible isn't always easy. But when we uncover what's going on in the story, a truth and an understanding to it, I hope will open our eyes, especially for some of the men in the room, to understand what truly happened. And for us to go any further in this conversation, we need to ask one more really, really big question. Where was Adam while this conversation with the serpent was going on? Do you ever think about that? Where in the world was Adam while Eve's having this conversation with the serpent? Is he like five miles away, just doing his own thing? What's going on during this? Well, we don't have to guess because the Bible 
often just tells us what's going on. Let's take a look in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. It says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. We talked about this last week. In other words, she was living in the flesh. She was no longer thinking of heavenly spiritual things. She was now just looking at, hey, if it looks good, sounds good, feels good, tastes good, must be good. She's living in what the Bible calls the flesh at this point. And it says she took some and ate it, and then she also gave some to her husband. What's it say after that? No, before that. Who was with her? Where was Adam during this entire conversation? Right there. Right next to her. He wasn't far off. He hadn't gone on a hike. Adam was right there. There's our hint a little bit as we move forward. See, growing up, I was told, I, I grew up in really conservative fundamental setting like my parents put the fun in fundamental man they they did uh, i mean it was a strict strict upbringing coming up and um, it might explain why i'm not that way uh these days but uh, but it was a loving caring home and jesus was at the center of it and but one of the things i was taught growing up in some of the the circles that i was in is the reason that god held uh adam responsible for this is because adam was in charge because Adam was the head, because Adam was the boss. He ruled over her, and that was his responsibility. But let me ask you something. Has there at any point in our conversation in Genesis 1 to 3 here been a time when God instructed Adam to rule over Eve? Was that ever one of the things he told her? The answer is no. In fact, the Bible does talk about rulership, and we need to pay attention to what it says about rulership. To understand that, we just need to back up a couple chapters as we go to Genesis chapter 1, and we look at the original story as God's creating things, and he's telling them what to do, and, and he's sending them off. But what do we see in Genesis 1.28? We see that God blessed them, and he said to them, the thems there are important. Them there are important, okay? So God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and every other living creature that moves on the ground. So now we need to ask an important question. Who's the them in this verse? Who is the them God is talking to? Well, we only need to back up one verse now to verse 27. It says, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created, what's that word there? Them. Who's the them in 28? Male and female. Who has been called to rule over the fish? the birds of the air, and the animals of the land, them, male and female. Did you catch that? And might I just throw a caveat in there? One of them is to rule over the, the, the animals of the land, including serpents. We talked last week, serpents are a created being. Adam and Eve had rulership, and what we're going to discover is they did not use their God-given rulership in a way that was God-honoring. And it ended up opening up the door to a pathway they would, should never have gone down. But rulership is for them. 
And so let's ask the biggest question of them all as we're making our argument. If this isn't about Adam's rulership over her and therefore God holding the, the boss, you know, uh, in charge uh, for the crime, what's this story about? So let me ask a different question. Who sinned first? This isn't about rulership. This isn't about being Eve's dark overlord, okay? Who sinned first? Now, according to Paul, that would be Adam. And you say, well, does that mean Eve didn't sin? Oh, she sinned, for sure. She sinned on this. So what's going on here, Jason? Well, the clue lies in what Paul said, remember back in that verse when he was writing to Timothy, he said, Adam was not deceived, but Eve was deceived. You see, the whole time while he's standing there, Eve was being deceived by the serpent, but the scripture makes clear, at no time was Adam deceived, which meant he understood what was going on, he knew what the serpent was saying, he had a clear understanding of the situation. So what did Adam do wrong? Eve ate the fruit first. Adam did nothing. Let that sink in for a second. Where did Adam go wrong? He did nothing. You say, who sinned first? Adam did. But wait, Eve, Eve Pastor Jason, she ate the fruit first. But that wasn't the first sin. And this may really surprise some of you. The first sin was Adam's passivity. He did nothing. He did not protect his wife. He did not stand up to the serpent. He did not correct the misuse of God's word. He did not end that conversation. He didn't do anything. He just allowed it to happen. And Adam's failure to act and his passivity was sin. Maybe you're bothered by that, and I was kind of counting on that, because I'll just flat out tell you, I think we live in a culture that thinks passivity is okay. We don't believe in a culture that thinks passivity is a sin, but the Bible wants you to know that it is. We live in a culture that says, you know what? I'm not going to get involved, not my thing. I'm just going to, I think I'm just going to mind my own business, stand off to the side. I don't think I want to jump into this. I'm not sure this involves me. Uh, you know what? I, I'll be over here if you need me. And I wonder how many of us are guilty of passivity sometimes. How often we're guilty of doing nothing are there areas in your lives where you have allowed sin to go on? How about in your marriage? How about in your family and your kids? How about in your home? Have there been areas that you're well aware there's sin in the camp, but we have done nothing about it? I think too many of us, we've got sin in the house and we're doing nothing about it. And there's entirely too many men out there, unfortunately, who are being passive. 
at a time when men need to courageously stand up and look to their families and their work, their homes, wherever it may be, may be and say, not here, not now, not on my watch. We need a group of courageous men to step up and stop doing nothing and to say, I'm going to be part of the solution, not the problem in this case. Why? James chapter 4, 17 tells us everything on that. If anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, what does it say there? It is sin for them. James, by the way, is Jesus' half-brother. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin. Yeah, Eve did sin. But I would argue Adam sinned first. He failed to stand up and protect his wife. He failed to correct God's word being misused. And he failed to stand up to the serpent. This wasn't a story about rulership and being the boss. This is about the two becoming one. And when the two become one, they protect each other. They guide each other. They help each other. As spouses on both sides of the equation, we exist to protect and help one another. Adam failed to protect his wife, Eve. And it was sin. How many times, men in particular, are we guilty of doing nothing? Even in God's commands, I mean, we go back to what he said to Timothy. He said it was Eve who was deceived. And we can kind of get an idea of what's going on because let me ask the question. The, the serpent came and tried to say, did God really say you can't eat from this tree or that tree? And, and let me ask you, did God ever tell Eve what tree she could eat from? Actually, no. He told Adam. Eve was created after that. Which means anything Eve knew in this story was secondhand knowledge. She would have heard it. And because of that, she was deceived. But Adam, who was standing there right with her, had heard directly from God, and he did nothing. He did not correct it. And Adam's sin and his failure to act opened up the door for his wife to sin. He should have shut the situation down and stopped and said, not here, not now, on my watch. But just to be clear, Adam did not exist to rule over his wife. He ruled over the serpent. And he did not step into his rulership role and correct that serpent in the midst of that situation. So eating the fruit, as often as we've been told, was not the first sin. The first sin was Adam's passivity and his inaction. And so men in particular, I get to pick on you today. Are you protecting your families and your wife and yourself from the lies of the enemy? Are you standing up for what is truth and God's word? Or are you off on the sidelines pretending like it isn't happening? and just hoping it'll go away. Are you guilty of doing nothing? Our world doesn't need any more passive men. 
it needs a group of men to stand up and live in their rulership role over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, and the animals of the ground, over the enemy that we serve. We do not rule over the serpent, or we do rule over the serpent, the serpent doesn't rule over us, but yet how many of our lives are allowing our enemy to speak lies, to tell us things that aren't true, to tempt us? You have it within you to stand up boldly to our enemy and say, not here, not now, in the name of Jesus Christ, get out. You can stand up to the enemy. Adam did not. So I end with men, protect your wife, guard your God's word and stand up to your enemy. And I remind us this whole conversation started with a verse at the end of chapter 2. A verse that I said a lot of people love to read, but I've always seen it kind of as an ominous verse. What is that verse in Genesis 2.25? It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. That seems really good. I, I always read that verse and I'm like, uh-oh, it's not going to go well here from here. I, I don't know if that's my skepticism or what it is, but there's always a sense like the, the floor is about to drop out from underneath this thing and what goes up comes down. And sure enough, that's kind of what happens. But it's an important verse. It says, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. You were created for dynamic, loving relationships. Did you know that? Authentic, transparent relationships. Free from guilt, free from shame, free from hiding, free from fear. God created you to live in freedom, to have a relationship with your spouse and with others free from all of the lies that the enemy brings and sin. And so what happens when we choose to allow sin in our lives? We see the destruction of relationships, not just our relationship with God, but our relationship with others. Genesis 3, 7, it says that the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings. And I, I correlated that with naked. Remember, we were, it says Adam and his wife were both naked. What happens when sin comes in? They're now making coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord of God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what does it say from there? They hid. They hid from the Lord. What happens when shame comes into our life? We hide. We hide from God and we hide from others. How many of you are hiding out there? Hiding from the shame, hiding from the guilt, hiding from the pain and the mistakes of your past. We know this story too well. God comes down and he finds Adam and Eve hiding. Adam starts by blaming his wife, which, guys, is a really, really bad idea. Don't do it. It follows up with Eve saying, the devil made me do it, which, you know, means Eve's the first charismatic Pentecostal in Scripture. <laughs> what do we find? Well, shame causes us to cover ourselves. Guilt causes us to blame others and uh, fear forces us to hide. 
And that's the story of humankind ever since sin entered the garden. We are living in shame, guilt, and fear. In shame, we find ourselves putting coverings on. And we do that in our culture all the time. It may not be fig leaves, but you know what? We have all these problems going on. We feel shame. We feel condemnation. So what do we do? Man, we drive a nice car. We put on some nice clothes, do up our hair, and we present ourselves as anything except what we feel like inside. We're pretending, and we're wearing masks. It's become even easier in our culture in the last 20 years with things like social media and artificial intelligence, things of that nature. Now we can pretend to be someone else online that we aren't. And we live in a culture that just supports pretending because we're all running away from our shame. What happens in our guilt? Well, we blame others. It's, it's called deflecting, you know what I mean? Take that spotlight you got on me and put it somewhere else, anywhere else, I don't care. Because if that spotlight's on me, I'm going to have to deal with my problem. I'm going to have to confess it. I'm going to have to admit I have a problem. So you know what? Get that spotlight and put it over there. And, and as a result, we end up with a culture of victims. Everyone's a victim because it's anybody else's and everything else's fault except me. And we live in a culture that's like to say, just please don't, it's not my fault. Life is happening to me. But as Christians, we're not called to let life happen to us. We are called to live in victory. But when we fall into the snare of guilt, we allow ourselves to believe again the lies of the enemy and we, we blame others and then that Blaming and that guilt eventually leads to fear and we find ourselves hiding. By the way, this is one of the greatest weapons of the enemy. He wants to isolate you. And he'll speak lies to you that say, hey, they don't like you. They don't want to be around you. They're mocking you. They're talking about you. They're gossiping about you. They think you're a fool. If you've ever watched National Geographic, you, you've seen it before, you know, what is it that a lion tries to do with the herd of gazelles? He tries to get one separated from the pack. Why? Because if he can get you separated from the pack, he's got you. And so the, 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 the devil constantly tries to get us alone, separated, because when he gets you there, he's got you where you want, and he feeds you lies, lies like, you know what, if you really knew what I thought... If you really know what I feel and what I think about, you'd hate me. Do you have any idea how ugly I am? He feeds us lies like that. And he isolates us and says, you can't go hang out with those people. You can't do life with them. You're imperfect. You've got garbage in your life. You're not worthy. But can I tell you something? If you're new to Radiant or maybe you've just started coming, you're a guest online, whoever it may be, Radiant is full of a bunch of messy people and not one single person's got their act together, okay? <laughs> We're a bunch of screwballs, all right? You don't have to do anything to be a part of our community except stop listening to the lies of the enemy. We're not looking for perfect people. You'll just ruin it for every single one of us, okay? <laughs> you just will, or we'll turn you imperfect, one of the two. <laughs> We're just a bunch of broken people trying to figure out grace. A grace that says that God loves you no matter who you are, where you've been, and what you've done. A father whose arms are wide open saying, please come home. Don't believe the lies of the enemy. 
And I end with this. If we stopped our story right here, it'd be a pretty sad story. Because at this point in the story, we've messed up, we've disobeyed God. God would end up telling them that there's consequences to sin and then ultimately kicking them out of the garden. We would find ourselves outside that garden, disconnected from God, and there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. We see an interesting conversation happen in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis 3.15, God's talking to the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Any idea who the he is in this? It's Jesus. They call this the proto-gospel, the first mention of the gospel in the entire Bible. And in the midst of the hopelessness, when all seems lost, God looks to the serpent and says, a he is coming. And while you may nip at his toes, he's going to crush your head. There is hope in the midst of hopelessness. And yes, that serpent, that devil, the dragon, he would put Jesus on the cross He would whip him. He would put a crown of thorns on him, spit on him, accuse him. But while the serpent placed him on the cross, the resurrection put that serpent on notice. Nothing is impossible for God. And hope walked out of that grave and said, with every death, there can be a resurrection through Jesus Christ. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven set free, and reconnected back to God. My friends, that's the good news. I will crush the head of the serpent. The call is for you to repent and believe. That was Jesus' message. Repent means change directions. I was going this way, but I'm going to follow Jesus now. His will, his way. That's the invitation to believe that he is the son of God, that he is your savior and he is your king. To obey him and to love as he loved. That's the invitation. But at the end of Genesis, in verse 9, we see what I think is one of the saddest verses in the entire Bible. In verse 9, you see God crying out, Adam, Where are you? Where are you? I'm wondering if God would be saying that to you. Where are you? I've come to give you hope. I'm a loving father with his arms wide open. Come home. Come home. There is grace and forgiveness and love. No fear, no shame no condemnation, naked and unafraid. No more hiding. Let's pray.